Hey everybody, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Mike Erie here with uh, the co-host, with the co-most, Timothy John Stafford. We are delighted to be with you today. Thanks for tuning in. And um, we, we've got kind of a full hour for you. Um, I don't know if it'll be a good hour, but it will be a full hour. I've got some thank yous, I've got some emails, and then I've got marriage to talk about today, ladies and gentlemen. So Tim and I, um, as we've talked about ad nauseum, um, (laughs) we have formed this little Vox partnership into a nonprofit. And um, thank you. I want to just say thank you for the incredible and generous community that we have uh, that not only likes and rates and subscribes and listens and emails, uh, but there are a bunch of you that help financially support the podcast and we want to keep it crowdfunded. And so we're just super grateful for people who come on either through Patreon or Tithely. And you can find out about either going to voxologypodcast.com. Most people want want to to start reading like toilet paper ads. All right, I'll do that in a second. Which could be great. Yeah, let's let's practice, all right? <laughs> so I'm looking at um, mini vitamins. R- like, literally, I'm showing them to Tim. Mini so, vitamins. Yeah, so this episode of the Vox Podcast is sponsored by Centrum. Adults 50-plus multi-gummies <laughs> supports heart, brain, and bone health. Now, oh. ladies and gentlemen, you might be wondering... Why is it that I have to take a different vitamin when I'm 50 plus as opposed to under 50 plus? Good question. And uh, the answer, of course, is marketing. Um, These are probably more (laughs) expensive. And uh, I'm sure, at least for men, because this is, oh, no, these are just adults, but uh, there's something to do with your prostate. So guys, if you're over 50, get that checked out. See, I think we'd be great at that. Yeah. Um, But until that day, I want to say thank you to Dan (laughs) And I want to say thank you to Amy, who increased uh, her support on Patreon. I want to say thank you to Sydney and David and Laura, all for coming on and being so generous. Thank you so very much for doing that. That is uh, that means more than we could possibly say, um, and um, you know it beats reading ad copy. So, <laughs> a couple of episodes ago, before we had a wonderful conversation with uh, the brilliant. Caitlin Shess, um, we got into a, a topic um, uh, around the idea of biblical manhood. And who better to discuss biblical manhood than two alpha types, right. Timothy John Stafford and Michael Leary. And not surprisingly, that conversation generated um, a bunch of other conversation. And so we've got some questions slash comments that I want to get to before we go into part two of this topic. And uh, yep, and the reason I think these are so good is because these fill in gaps or ask for clarification of things that we talked about. So uh, this is from a um, it's from a pastor who says, "Thanks for the good conversation of masculinity." My initial reaction as I listened was to think about moments where Jesus himself clearly confronts, even rebukes. Yeah. A type of militant, aggressive, alpha male masculinity. I know some of this is an informed, quote, reading between the lines of Scripture, but we should consider James and John the sons of Zebedee, right? And if, if you know the Gospels, these guys were uh, pretty gung-ho. Yeah. 
Um, he Very says cool there nickname. are there are a lot of gaps in the gospel narratives around these two, but we do know they are given the nickname Sons of Thunder by Jesus, oh. and most scholars acknowledge this is probably due to their intense, and he writes in parentheses, perhaps even aggressive and abrasive emotions at times. I love this. In Luke 9, they quickly desire to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans in a fury of aggressive anger and self-righteousness, and Jesus rebukes them and provides a lesson on tolerance. Quote, or he says in parentheses, not a very manly thing is defined by many in our day. And in Mark 10, they're interested in grabbing powers. They imagine Jesus entering in Jerusalem to defeat the Romans and establish a new rule over the land. They are rebuked yet again. It seems to me that this is an instructive narrative in the Gospels related to our conversations about masculinity. Any form of manhood that is self-righteous, militant, aggressive, eager to subdue others, and interested in getting power is flat-out rebuked by Jesus. Yeah, you even have Peter. Yeah, cutting off an ear. Um, in examples uh, of this. Yes, the ear, but even the, you know when Jesus announces the, the crucifixion. Yeah. Um, you oh, know, yeah, that yeah. sort of... That conversation. <clears throat> and he not says, on my watch. And not if, I, if my ear has anything to do with it. <laughs> and we see Jesus continue to walk with these alpha males and invite them into a better way. He confronts toxic masculinity and yet doesn't give up on alpha male bros either. Holding grace uh, and truth together so perfectly as always. What a great point. So yeah. yes, Jesus does seem to paint a picture over against some of the tropes uh, that are, you know, prevalent in our day about being uh, very aggressive, very assertive, and seeking power over. So I thought that was a great, great email. This is uh, from another fellow. He says, Dear Nate, and then he puts in parentheses, right state, wrong school. So my son goes to Wright State <laughs> University, named after the Wright brothers. And the knock on Wright State is that it's the Wright State, Ohio, but the wrong school, Ohio State. So uh, anyway... In order of importance, this individual says, Dear Nate, Seth, Tim, and Mike. So we might quibble with putting Seth second, but okay, that's fair. <laughs> I think Tim in third place is really the way to go with Mike in fourth. I just finished the episode on biblical masculinity. And I agree with you on many points from this episode. As a 24-year-old man, there are many things I hear regarding masculinity to me the re-emerging of all of this talk on biblical masculinity relates to the problems people see regarding men my age. Some of the recent quotes I've heard, and then he gives five really interesting sort of facts on the ground. One, from the minister of men at my conservative, almost reformed church, quote, you young men need to stop waiting to get your life together and just marry a woman already. Yep. <clears throat> Two, from some uh, women in our young adults group, the guys don't ask any of the girls out. Three, from a popular young adults pastor, quote, one of the biggest problems of Gen Z is male passivity. There you go. Four, for many people, a disdain for 20-something men who live at home and don't have a job. And he says, granted, I, don't, I, I know absolutely no men who fit this description, but there is a cultural sort of stereotype there. Yeah. And then fifthly, he says, from my own observations, more women take Jesus seriously than men, at least at my age. Now, he, and, and uh, so super interesting. Then he says, my goal is only to point out that something is going on with young adult men, or at least everyone else sees a problem with young adult men. 
as a pastor and a professor, what do you guys see going on with men in my generation? So you're the professor, evidently. Um, <laughs> what do you go see going on with men in my generation? Are these complaints valid? Were there similar concerns when you were in your 20s? What does discipleship of men look like? And should that necessarily be different than how women are discipled? What a great, fantastic set of questions. Yeah. So my goodness, thank you for writing in. And I have heard all of those the those stereotypes too yeah they were saying that stuff when i was in my 20s oh absolutely men are commitment phobic yeah we're extending our adolescence we're just sitting at home playing video games i got married late i got definitely got those speeches did did you have a job i was was 25 or 26 when i got married so that's not that late i was 29 yeah 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 so early no but this is such a great a great set of questions because um, I think there is the perception uh, that there is something wrong with yeah. young men. And but the the question I have instantly is what standard to what standard are young men being held against? Is it the fifties ideal of you go to a four year college, you immediately graduate into a a 40 year career and you marry and have two kids by the time you're 23. If that's the standard, then um, the world has changed so dramatically and jobs aren't what they were and college isn't what it was that I would say, well- why the okay boomer thing started because Gen Z was just kind of like, all right, enough. You know, this is not the same world or the same circumstances or anything and we're tired of right so i mean i don't know if the concerns are valid uh i i would simply say there there is evidence enough to suggest that this type of masculine talk is appealing to something and helpful in something and probably identifying a way in which the church has fallen short well what were the two Um, questions that he asked back to back was it like um He, he he said um is it this uh, or is it that? Do you, what do you see going on with men in my generation? Are these complaints valid? Were there similar concerns when you were in your 20s? What does discipleship of men look like? The um, And no, should yeah. that be necessarily There's something else he asked. I was like, is, it, is this true? Or are men being held to uh, a wrong I'm, standard? So I can't remember exactly what it was. It was like a twofold thing. But it's like, I think that instead of answering one of those, or one of those being As the I'm answer, looking think, at the email... You are completely wrong. He said nothing of the sort. <laughs> yeah. There's something in there, but I would say that the second question is the answer to the first question. Like whatever Which those is, false standards are of like, you know, that, that list, like, hey, um, men are th- young men are this or young men are that. And the, these expectations that are built out by older generations that are complaining about the younger generations are what are causing younger men to have an identity crisis. So I don't think is it is it young men are having an identity crisis or are these things true? I think the things that those standards are what are causing people to have mm. crisis. Right. So so yes, one one point we want to make, and we're wrong about a lot of things, but maybe not this thing. <laughs> um, is dep- uh, uh, what standard is being held up as the ideal? Yeah. Because once you baptize one standard, and then well, what's wrong with guys today that they don't X, Y, and Z? Yeah, and well, if you keep okay. telling them something's wrong, it they'll makes live it, up to it that. Make something, yeah, make something yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's self-fulfilling. 
The second thing I want to say, though, is if we're going to look at um, aimlessness, let's say, among men, or young men anyway, I mean, the places where I'm going with that would be the church as holding up only the nuclear family as the potential ideal for life, meaning, and purpose. Also, the church really buying into an artificial and superficial uh, portrayal of biblical, quote, masculinity that no one really lives up to in terms of being the head of the house and the primary provider and the spiritual authority over your wife and children. And I just think all of that's a bunch of nonsense. Um, and, um, and so I think that, you know, I think Gen Z types, because they have such a, a nuanced BS radar, just sort of see <laughs> through the, you know, the wild at heart sort of prescriptive, every man's got to fit into this sort of value system kind of thing. I would say but too, I, like it's going to get worse. And why do you say that? Because the generation that's coming up right now, that's, that's coming out of high school there's a really large, like the trauma that of COVID and three years of being antisocial, being stuck at home. Yeah, we're seeing that now with the freshmen coming into college. Like it, this had a profound effect, and mm -hmm. the like the levels of lethargy or just kind of apathy are pretty high. Yeah, yeah. and so we're gonna yeah. have to find a much better way of like loving and listening and leaning into that generation. Ooh, and the, the more else. confrontational we are, it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of tragic for those kids. So people need to learn. People need to take a breath and learn how to listen and kind of pay attention to those kids because it's it's rough out there. I will say this: my experience of young men, as speaking as one, of course, but oh, then hey, also your vitamins already. My to experience that. of them <laughs> is. Um, that many in my orbit are looking for spiritual parenting. And I don't mean this in some fundy way. You know, I mean this in um, wisdom, modeling real life. I think that as the nuclear family unit has blown up in some ways, um, I think there is a lot of practical wisdom that just doesn't get dispensed about yeah. time and money and stuff. I think that... Uh, in church, we have either given a vision of masculinity that's super passive and nice or super al alpha and, ag and aggressive. And it's just both both are so dumb and don't do justice <laughs> to the reality of what it is to be human. We just haven't given a great vision of what it is to be human. We've made Jesus following about rules and doctrine and all those sorts of things that we bemoan all the time. And so I don't know, man. I, I, I would say... As a 24-year-old man, um, and I, I hear the complaints, and I'm sure there are some men that should settle down, and I'm sure there are sure. some men that should get a job, and I'm sure there are some men that um, uh, should be more active uh, instead of passive. Okay. I'm sure but there's what, some women too. Yeah. I mean, what's the point in, what's the, where does that conversation go other than, other than, something's happening and there's a reason why Jordan Peterson or Driscoll or you know these alpha types are gaining some sort of father uh, following and I think that's where the church needs to query okay 
where where are we falling short in the vision that we have for humanity? Yes, that is, so that we're not baptizing individual expressions of masculinity, femininity, but we're talking about what it is to be fully human. Yeah, um, and the, the the church becomes a place where we are all reparented together in the best possible ways from whatever it is that we're carrying from childhood or. You know, yeah. further on. So and shame so to, never worked for anybody as a motivator. <laughs> when are you gonna get a job? D- just this week alone. This week oh. since Ooh, we last recorded with Caitlin, you had um, uh, so Sutton Turner, who was on the who was oh, on yeah. the leadership board at uh, um, Mars, Mars Hill, Hill like explained Driscoll like physically assaulting other pastors and how he led with fear and masculinity and force. And now he's like, he was even timid. I watched a video clip of him talking about it and he was like, you could tell that he was still kind of shaken by it all these years removed. And there was, that was a big masculine leader. You had the thing that happened with Nancy Pelosi's husband that has now been kind of like a lot of Christian men are kind of making fun of it. And right. the former SBC chairman guy posting a Halloween pic of a pair of underwear and a hammer and um, yeah. all these people, I don't know, they're just making jokes out of it, out of like the masculinity, out of being beat by a hammer and, and all that, like baptizing the violence. You yep. have the that Hulu doc that everyone's going nuts about that premiered last night about Jerry about Falwell, Falwell Jr. Yeah. Yeah and kind of what the nuclear family and advocating for the marriage bed and that kind of stuff while they were doing what they were doing. And like all this dehumanizing um, rhetoric from conservatives over all those topics where they kind of demonize people that are living different ways that they are and they advocate violence for it. And it's seen, Mm -hmm. a lot of that is baptized as masculine Mm -hmm. responses to things like stand up, take charge. The guy that you mentioned two weeks ago that's writing the case for Christian nationalism or whatever. Yeah. Yep. He's going bananas on just everybody <laughs> right now. It's and it's and they have all these conferences. Like it's I mean it's it's yeah. a funny topic, but it's like it's yeah. It's kind of it's spreading like wildfire right now, the violent rhetoric. Yeah. And then people pick up a hammer and break into someone's house because they think that they're doing God's work. They think they're doing good work to try to kill somebody with a hammer. It's like it's pretty wild out there yeah yep and and the wildness i mean the wildness has always existed um but it's being baptized now as a a culturally appropriate expression of biblical masculinity that's that's the insanity it's crazy crazy. yeah yeah now his question about discipling men and women differently well yes and no I mean, Jesus had big, large groups of male and female disciples, and he was yeah. discipling all of them the same. Um, so I'm not, I'm not huge into um, what I used to do, which was, you know, the the men have the purity talk and the women have the purity talk, and you know, you kind of. Um, but but I do think it but the, the man way was that about Paul, controlling yourself, and the woman one is about don't tempt him. Well, yeah, that was kind of it. Um, how far can I go? And is masturbation okay? Were the two big yeah. questions. Okay. Um, so anyway, great set of questions. And, um, and and follow up. I mean, I'd love to talk more about this because I've learned so much. And raising, raising Big Nate, who's almost 20, 
has been so interesting from how I was raised. Totally. Um, and and what are the what are the trade offs? Also, if um, I say one last little thing on that before you segue. One of the things we learn in the classroom is that whether it's discipling or it's teaching, um, so many people from one male to the next male to the next male have different learning styles. And yeah. to effectively reach and speak to those people, you have to really take that into account. And I'd imagine discipling would be exactly the same way. Like just saying there's one way to do either gender or that there's just one way to disciple and period uh, leaves a lot of people out in the cold. Yep. Yep. Um, also, we have, and not surprisingly, we heard from a lot of guys, but we've also heard from a lot of our sisters. And yeah. so here's a sampling of some emails. Um, Thanks for this week's episode. I'm a woman who's, and I've been really struggling with these concepts of biblical manliness <laughs> that I've seen propagated all around me in so many different Christian circles. I felt and had seen from observations how harmful these ideas were both to men and women, but struggled to articulate them. And that's the point. They really are destructive to both. Um, If I tried to have discussions around these topics and why they might be harmful, I'd often be told that I was just under the influences of our times stemming from radical feminism. I felt like they were wrong. The people saying this to her were wrong. But at the same time, those constant comments planted seeds of doubt in my mind, and I wondered if these notions of biblical manhood were truly what the gospel was proclaiming. They are not. You do not have to worry about that any longer. Um, and that I'd just fallen in with the ideas of the world. Nope, they have. That's the point. Um, I want to truly follow the Bible. I have been silently struggling with this for a while. just want to say I appreciate the podcast. I found so much peace, healing, clarity, and a path forward through it. Um, and she says, I would love to talk further, uh, um, more. I'd love to talk further about this episode. So great news. We are going to <laughs> boom. But yes, I mean, that, 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 um, the idea that we're resisting these biblical caricatures, quote, biblical caricatures is somehow that we've fallen in line with the times when it's just baptizing cultural stereotypes and calling them biblical i mean come on my goodness um all right here are a couple of really good questions and recommendations all right so this one is from a very very she she is a regular commenter very articulate she says um a couple of thoughts first of all how do you square your understanding of a non-gendered human person with paul's telling that adam was created first and then eve and that man was not created for woman but woman for man and, and the way I square that is um, that Adam was the one that responded to the creation of Eve. Eve did not respond to the creation of Adam. So in the story in Genesis 2, it seems like the male was gendered first and then the woman was gendered out of the male. And so Adam in the story is responding to the appearance of Eve. So in that sense, he was created first and responds to her. And then after Genesis 3 actually names her. And so Paul does some things with that in, in uh, second, First Timothy that we'll get to in a couple of uh, episodes. But um, my, my take on that is, is that Paul was right in saying that Adam, the gendered male, was created first um, before the gendered female. Absolutely. And the text makes it clear that the gendered female was taken out of the gendered male. Yeah. So, so 
understood completely why that would be confusing. Thank you for clarifying it. And then she uh, said, number two, your understanding of your des the desire for the woman for her husband. I interpret that in Genesis uh, 3, in the great lament where God you know, curses the serpent and he curses the ground. He says to the woman, your uh, pains in childbirth will be greatly increased and, um, and that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There are five different interpretations of what that those two words mean. What does desire mean and what does rule mean? Are they positive words? Are they negative words? And her, uh, her point here is, I, I presented it both as negative. Her desire is a desire for mastery or control. And his desire to rule is to desire, to desire, exercise, uh, to desire to exercise authority over. She says, um, your understanding of women trying to control men is used uh, against women in complementarian circles all the time. Women want to take charge, we are told. Women aren't content to stay in their created place. The um, ESV, one of the, the very reformed kind of translation of the Bible, has enshrined as its, quote, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, out of Genesis uh, 3, um, in their attempts to cast male-female relationships in a certain light. And maybe that verse does imply a power struggle here, but maybe it doesn't. And when you teach that understanding, be mindful that this is a disputed interpretation that is used to harm women. I encourage you to check out a link I've included. Now, she links somebody named Marge, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but she's an, she's, she has put together a collection of blogs and research articles and scholarship on the most disputed passages around the issue of women in leadership and ministry. We're going to link the article in the show notes so that you can go check it out for yourself. Personally, she says, I have long understood this part of the curse to not describe a power struggle per se, but rather a woman's um, general, statistically broad, and not universal in inclination toward a monogamous relationship and children and a family and a male disposition, quote, or parentheses, statistically broad, not universal, to rule over in ways that harm the woman that he is supposed to love and also disrupt the community that he so desperately needs. So, so she's saying, listen, you presented this as the only interpretation. There are others, absolutely. So we'll link uh, the article. The reason I hold that interpretation is because that combination of desire and rule is used a chapter later to, to mean power struggle. Yeah. Um, and, um, and the fact that complementarians use, weaponize the first part or the second part of the verse um, or excuse me, they weaponize the first part of the verse, your desire will be for your husband, but right. not the second, right. shows how futile their um, interpretation actually turns out to be. They're actually, in the way they're, they're using that, they're actually reinforcing the fact that this was, one of the, this was one of the laments about the reality of male and female relationships, right? They're ruling over the women by holding their desire to control over them, is in other words. And so it, so so the fact that yes, that interpretation has been used to harm women just proves the point. I think of the whole verse. 
So, so yes, there are really smart people that disagree and really smart people that know the language is better than I do who disagree. Hallelujah. And I will do a better job presenting that sort of controversial stuff with a bet with better nuance in terms of, Hey, there are other ways of understanding this. Um, but I still, I still think it's the best translation. And I think that the abuse of it in complimentary in, in complementarian circles actually proves, um, the point that, that. And, and the fact that there's very little self-examination in men out of that verse just shows, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, proves its validity. Yeah. So, I mean, if men go to that part of the verse and not the desire to rule part first, then that tells you everything you need to know about totally. the guy that you're dealing with. So, excellent. Thank you. And then, and then another, uh, another woman wrote in and said, hey... There is, uh, in the, um, on the Bible Project's website, there is a class you can take in Genesis. And the, the way, so Tim Mackey is a guy that I have and we have massive respect for. He is a scholar. The Bible Project takes really complicated theology and Bible study and boils it down into very accessible thematic illustrations um he'll call them cartoons but they're just way cooler than that um and she said so i'll just read it she said um i took the bible project's classroom class on genesis 2 and 3 was incredibly excellent i would highly recommend it they bring some more material to interpreting god's lament in genesis 3 than what you shared in the last podcast specifically in regard to the curse It was extremely helpful to interpret that poem, not as a litany of curses, because God only curses the serpent and the ground, um, but rather as God's lament over the way the decision in the garden will play out across human history and in the lives of men and women. They also clarify that God is not making childbirth more painful, but lamenting how the misuse of power will lead to painful circumstances in which children are conceived, born, and raised. The blessing of fruitfulness will be compromised by the grasp for power in the garden. This then is what the rest of Genesis is about. Family battles to be fruitful. Um, Their class is free, and it's the first time I'd heard this interpretation. As a woman, it was incredibly freeing. It made so much sense of the text. It prevents a lot of bad interpretive moves you pointed out. You all might benefit from this particular session as much as I did. The women in your audience may as well. So thank you very much for pointing that out. I went on and, and looked at it. And um, it is indeed free. And it is indeed wonderful. And um, man, we could not highly recommend the Bible Project stuff more. Yeah. So if, if Tim, Tim Mackey and Mike Erie ever disagree, know a couple of things first if we duked it out in the boxing ring if i could catch tim i would win but but secondly intellectually he is by far the heavyweight so (laughs) great stuff you all thank you man such good stuff all right tim yes i want to take the next half hour 30 minutes of our life and i want to talk about how my view in my view, Ephesians 5, this wives submit to your husband text, reverses the curses of Genesis 3. Now, if you understand the curses differently than how I've outlined them, then my understanding of Ephesians 5 isn't going to address the same problems, right? If you, right. if, because I'm, I'm going after the power struggle. So it's totally cool if you come at Ephesians 5 and uh, you have a different view of it in relation to Genesis 3 than I do. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. 
But I actually think there's some, there's a, there, there's some really interesting things going on in Ephesians 5 that um, I want to talk about. Um, Tim, why don't you pull up Ephesians 5 for us in English? I have it up in Greek because I'm Obviously. cool like that. Yes. Um, and and read, um, where, read the part that starts with, do not get drunk with wine. 518. Do not, how much am I reading? I'll tell you when to stop. All right. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another. Okay, stop for a second. Okay. That litany of instructions, is all. those are participles based on one clause that comes before that, the Santa Clause. Um, <laughs> who who are Everybody those instructions? So confused. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Who are those instructions written to, Timothy? The Ephesians. Yes. Who exist as a what? <laughs> uh, church. Yes. So, the the biggest, most devastating interpretive mistake we make around Ephesians five is we think that Paul somehow transitions instantly and without warning right from talking about the church to talking about the nuclear family and he is not making that transition even though our bibles may have a paragraph break and a new heading like my bible has a break after 21 submit yourselves and then it'll be like instructions for christian households this one has it before that yeah this is this is devastating in the interpretation of this verse paul is talking about the social ordering of the church the entire way through it's not like he says um hey guys church 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 oh and by the way married husbands and wives make sure you do this to each other and then back to the church it is the church all the way through all right um and what paul's going to do is he's going to, and he does this here, he does it in Colossians, but he uses something called called a household code. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, so I'll just sort of do a general review. Um, A lot of ancient philosophy, a lot of ancient Greek philosophy was concerned with the best way to manage, organize, and lead a nation state, or in their case, a city state. Um, or sometimes it was the same thing. Um, a city state and a nation state would be considered equivalent. Um, and so the, the best way to organize um, the ideal city state was to break it into its smallest part, which was, which was called in those days a household. Now for us, thousands of years later, a household is a mommy and a daddy and a brother and a sister and a dog. All right. And we call that like the nuclear family. Right. Um, for Paul and for the Greek philosophers and ethicists of his day, the, a household existed of a paterfamilias, which was the head of the household, the oldest male landowner. And, and the, that male landowner like ran the household and under the authority of his household would consists, 
would consist like nuclear families or other households or artisans or slaves or unmarried slaves or you'd have a, a huge combination of different configurations of people some would be married some would be parents some would be unmarried parents some would be siblings some would be whatever um, but it wasn't dealing with a nuclear family it was dealing with a small community that was under the lordship of the paterfamilias the oldest male does that make sense so far yeah the household existed for the glory of the paterfamilias and existed to further the paterfamilias's agenda a name and reputation in the world all right there that the, these ancient writers um and we're talking about like socrates or aristotle um would use three sets of relationships to define how a household should function and then once they defined the ideal household you would multiply that by a thousand times and then you would get the ideal city-state all right because the household was the smallest unit that functioned like a little city-state and you multiply those all together and you get a larger city-state make sense yep all right so so there were three relationships they all had the paterfamilias at the center um, the, the relationship between the husband and the wife, the master and the slave, and the father and the children. Now, realize that the master, father, husband was all the same person. That was the paterfamilias. And only the paterfamilias was considered uh, in the Greek value system to be fully human. And that is because only the paterfamilias was a free person who was self-determining and owned land right so so greece ancient greece wasn't truly a democracy it was it was led by uh, males who were the oldest in their families who owned land and and they were the only ones considered fully human all right women were considered partially human but but they were not fully developed and aristotle has you know really controversial things to say about that if a, a male children were considered potential humans and female children were considered potential almost humans all right slaves were not considered humans at all they were considered property are you with me so far yes all of these relationships in ancient near uh, in ancient household codes existed for the paterfamilias so uh the way that the writers would break it down is that the way the paterfamilias should treat his wife is as if she belonged to a lower social class. So it was an, an aristocratic way of leadership. So the husband was of a higher class because he was fully human. The wife was a lower class. She was almost fully human, but, but he was not a dictator. He was an aristocrat. He treated, he was to treat his wife as if she existed in a lower social class. Yeah. Okay. The way that the children were to relate was um, to each other was a democracy. Um, that that the the children as siblings related in a purely democratic way. The majority rules. The way that the father was to lead the children was depending on whether the the child was male or female. But the child, it was a monarchy. Um, that the, the paterfamilias was king and ruled over his children as subjects. Now, do you see the difference? He yeah. was to rule over his wife as an aristocrat. He was to rule over his children as a monarch. And then he was to rule over his slaves as an owner. 
right? Monarchs and aristocrats deal with people. Owners deal with property. So, so slaves, they were, they were disposable. You had absolute authority over their life and death and treatment, whatever else. All right, are you with me so far? Yeah. So the concern was how do we organize a, a polis, um, a, a political entity, a city, um, well, that, the answer to that became, how do you organize the household? And you organize the household around three ways that the paterfamilias will relate to people. Um, he will relate to um, uh, his wife as someone of a lower social class, his children as subjects, and his slaves as property. So when you get a bunch of paterfamiliases together in an assembly and they're conducting the business of the city, the way they relate to each other is of siblingship. And mm -hmm. that was where democracy, Greek democracy resided. Does yeah. that all make sense? Yeah. All right. Now, start reading, start reading Paul's instructions with that in view. So Paul's, Paul, Paul is dealing with how do you structure the church? All right, and he's gonna use a social code as an example, because remember, social codes weren't about how you structured a house. It was about how you organize society. So Paul is now using that same literary form to talk about how you organize church. All right? So, All right. So with, starting with verse 21. Yes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle. See, we're still talking about church. Other... We're talking about church. We're talking about church. <laughs> Keep or going. any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Talk about in church. This, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking... Oh, we talking... think we're talking about marriage, but no, we're talking about the church. <laughs> it's a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Correct. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, keep going. Oh, that's the end of chapter five. Yeah, but we're still in household code. Doesn't know, matter what only... your dumb chapters say. <laughs> I only brought up Ephesians five. Come on, man. I'm so sorry. All right, children... Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life of, on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will, re re the Lord will reward each one 
for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ooh, man, that's so good. First of all, great reading. Thank you. Timothy, the voice of an angel. All right, things to notice. All right, and this is so very important. First of all, we're still talking about the church. We've been talking about the church the whole time. I know that's super hard to get your head around, but it's the only way to make sense of what he's talking about husbands and wives. But no, I'm talking about Christ and his church. Yeah. Secondly, Paul does something that, that means nothing to us, but meant everything in that cultural context. He addresses the most socially vulnerable person of the pairing first. So he addresses wives before husbands, children before parents, and slaves before masters. And the fact that he commands them to do something, again, it's lost on us completely. We get lost in, oh, well, look what he's commanding them to do. Underlining Paul's directions is the idea that these three sets of people are people and have agency. They're actually self-determining humans. They have dignity. They're given something to do. And so, I mean, and we cannot, we cannot, Timothy, I don't know what you're doing in your chair right here. We, ca- we cannot overlook how significant that is. That, that agency, the idea of being self-determined was one of the ways that you acknowledge that somebody was human. They had decisions over their lives. When Paul addresses the most socially vulnerable of each pair first, what he's, and he's giving them something to do, what's he saying? That you, you, are, you have determination in the way that you will react and respond uh, in these social situations. He's treating them, and again, it's lost on us, but believe me when I say he's treating them um, and inviting them into mutuality and reciprocity. Because the wife is given something to do, as is the husband. The children are given something to do, as are the parents. The slaves are given something to do, as are the masters. So what he's done, he hasn't come out and said, hey, let's get rid of the whole idea of the ancient Roman household. But what he's done is he's totally relativized the idea instead of, hey, men, treat your wives as lesser humans, as aristocrats. What has he said to them? He's right, which is rule over. What he said to them is what? Love them as you would love your own self. Oh my goodness. Now that is the opposite of ruling over. Right? And then he said to, to, um, to, and notice he doesn't address fathers and mothers. He just addresses fathers. Don't exasperate your children, (laughs) which, which the cultural sort of thing. But notice he gives the children something to do. And to the fathers, you're not to rule over them as some monarch. You're to actually treat them with dignity and don't provoke them. And masters, instead of ruling over your slaves as property, realize you have a master too. I mean, this was ridiculously subversive, right? I mean, this was big. And so, so, so what is Paul saying about the church? Well, he's, he's giving... He gives the example in, in uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 21. Read verse 21 of chapter 5. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he's going to give three examples of submitting to one another using 
the household code that said, husbands treat your wives as aristocrats, fathers treat your children as monarchs would treat subjects and treat your slaves as you would treat property. Now yeah. he's gonna say, first he's gonna dignify each of those three classes of individuals by giving them and addressing them specifically before the paterfamilias. But then secondly, he's gonna invite the paterfamilias to treat them as human and to abandon monarchy, aristocracy, and property ownership in the way that he relates to the people in his household and thereby the way he treats the people in his church. So in the church, the household of God gets reconfigured into siblingship. Yeah. So that, that, so that it is a true democracy in that sense, right? Yeah. Not that we're yeah. voting, but in the sense that you're treating each other as brothers and sisters. Yeah. Do you see that dynamic? He takes yes. the dynamic of the gospel and the, the dynamic of the gospel overthrows the power structure that enshrines the paterfamilias as ruler and invites the paterfamilias down into reciprocity and mutuality and invites the slaves, women, and children out of subhumanness into agency and reciprocity. That's what the gospel does. And that, that is exactly the reversal of Genesis 3, right? Yeah. That was the ideal of Genesis 1 and 2 reciprocity mutual service well now we're invited back into it but yeah. not just women and children a whole community now that's point one whoa point two and this is why i have the greek up point two is even if a complementarian is gonna quote the wives submit to your husband's verse and say what's well, the word of god and that's just how it goes <laughs> Set their voice. Um, well, lost the word of God, and that's how it goes. That's next yes. Year. Yeah, well, he probably <laughs> said that. Um, grammatically, uh, verse 22 has no command for wives to submit. So here's the literal, here's the literal rendering of 21. All right. Be submitting yourselves, that's the first word, to one another, Alaleois in reverence of christ um and man i'm learning all this uh, so christu is in the genitive form and so that's the of in reverence of christ mm -hmm. um and then chapter uh same chapter verse 22 it says wives to your own husbands as to the lord now there's no verb there right so grammatically even though we have a paragraph break and a new verse number and a new heading the sentence hasn't stopped. The sentence is, be submitting yourselves to one another in reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands, as an example of the general principle. And then he's going to go, right? Husbands to your wives, children to your parents, parents to your children, slaves to your masters, masters to your slaves. Does that make sense? Yeah. So grammatically, it doesn't even say wives submit to your husbands. It just gives wives and husbands as a household code example of the general principle of submitting to one another. And then he gives two other examples of submitting to one another. And he uses the wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. Make sense? Yes. So if you're going to translate if you're going to translate 522, it just simply says, wives, as to your husbands, as to the Lord. That's right. it. 
and you're sitting there going, okay, so we've, we have invented a whole nuclear family dynamic. Yeah. A, out of a section of text that deals with the church and is answering a question about how the community should be governed. Yeah. B, on, on, uh, on grammatical, a grammatical dependence of verse 22 onto verse 21, right? So you cannot have wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Although it's implied, it's only implied there if you borrow the verb from verse 21, <laughs> which is giving a general principle that governs the whole community. Yeah. And then thirdly, third point, Paul isn't talking about nuclear families in America, nor is he talking <laughs> about spiritual leadership. Nor is he talking about who leads the devotions or who takes the trash out. Right. Any, any imposition of those ideas onto the text is reading the culture into the text and is not at all in the text itself. Yeah. So to me, Ephesians 5 is Paul's, and notice the instructions to the men, to the husbands, are like two-thirds as long as to the wives. Yeah, totally. But again, he's not talking to husbands and wives. He's reframing the, the husband away from aristocracy and into yeah. mutuality and love. So that's all I have to say about that. It's pretty wild. The same, that same dude that uh, has the Christian nationalist book or whatever... I'm trying not to say his name to publicize him, but um, he also, he and a few others advocated for like an overturning of the 19th Amendment so that women wouldn't see voting as an idol. And it's under the pretense of some of this kind of ideas totally. and language, right? Like, but, so here, but here's the thing. Those, those people are trolls. There's no way. There's no way. We, those are serious intellectual ideas. But people read them as serious, serious intellectual ideas. That's what's the problem. It's the same. The grammar thing is fascinating, right? We'll do that in English class. Like you'll do like the let's eat comma grandma or just the let's yeah. eat grandma. And the comma, losing the comma changes an invitation to eat grandma to us actually eating grandma. And yeah. you see how much of an importance gra grammar can change the complete <laughs> meaning of something. And it's wild. It's really yeah. wild. And it's yeah. wild that these things stay mistranslated for so long and create well they're not mis cultures. i mean they're or misorganized the, the, or i think one of the biggest things that our english bibles do to throw us off and, and it's not my goodness not nefarious and it's more helpful than it is hurtful but the verse number paragraph break heading thing is really problematic that's why gombas one of the things i love that gombas uh, does when like you know he went through the book of Romans and you could email him and get a book of Romans with all the verse numbers and headings and paragraph breaks taken out and um, it matters because we we are so often taught to think that um, you know we're moving on to other subjects when the author is still talking about the same thing and so uh, this is an instance where it becomes I think really problematic I never knew that you know, it seems wives... overly problematic. Like it doesn't seem helpful. It seems very hurtful. <laughs> well, I think it really is harmful. Uh, I, and I just am trying not to disparage um, the attempt to help people access their Bibles through verse numbers and headings and paragraphs. Um, I do think in, in, in some cases that really throws us off. And I think this is like one of the predominantly harmful ways it does that is that it'll it'll end 
and we're thinking, oh, we're, we're talking about Christian households now. And in one sense, that's true. The problem is household has an entirely different connotation for them than it would for us. Yeah. We read household, and I've always thought nuclear family. And so what Paul is doing is drawing parallels between the relational dynamics in the Roman value system and how Roman assemblies would then work, and then contrasting them with in the, in the Christian household, there's a different set of dynamics, and that's how the church should work, right? Using the same sort of literary form. So, yep, it's a big deal, man. Um, how many women here, were ever involved in the translations? Do you know? In translation, I don't know. Um, I, I, you know what? <laughs> I would hazard a guess, not many. Yeah, it'd be interesting to maybe take another pass. Yeah, 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 yeah. The all the all um, female translation <laughs> committee would be that'll go over really well. Um, anyway, brothers and sisters, <laughs> thank you for tuning in. Um, if you have questions, uh, please go ahead and and uh, like, comment. You know, find us on the socials. Do the things. Um, we just find this such fascinating stuff and so relevant for our day. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give his peace. Till next time, friends. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials, facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.